Welcome to the 24 Stories podcast that aims to educate, inspire and help build brands. I'm your host, Stephen Ryan, founder of 24 Stories, and I'll be joined each week by guests from a variety of industries, here to tell you how they built their brands. And also a big thanks to this week's show sponsor, iTrolley.ie, who have come on board to sponsor this episode. iTrolley is an online marketplace that offers thousands of products and a broad range of services. And they're down at Lyland, and you can find out more about them on iTrolley.ie. Welcome to episode five of the 24 Stories podcast. Was away for the last two weeks and thankfully I have a fantastic producer in the lane that she managed to get two brilliant short stories or throwback stories as we call them from the second conference in, in 2019. You know, if you haven't listened to them yet, they're short little bite-sized episodes. They're only about 10 minutes long and you learn a lot from them. But it's great to be back in the studio and in particular, I'm really interested in, in this week's story. A lot of you will probably know that I'm, I'm quite interested in sport, in particular, a big interest in football, especially having worked in Cork City Football Club myself in the past and having dealt with the FAI. And then about a year or two ago, I got an, an email. I suppose we were doing case studies in CIT and I got an email from a business in Cork that was dealing with some of the biggest global sporting organisations in the world. It was called Leading Sport Agency. Their CEO, Maeve Buckley, sits in front of me today. Welcome to the podcast, Maeve. Thanks, Stephen. Nice to be here. Tell me, I'm fascinated that somebody from Cork can end up working with the likes of FIBA and basketball, FIFA, UEFA and stuff like that. But sport isn't where you started. When I look back, am I right in saying that you studied languages in UCC? I did. I studied Italian and German in UCC. And my involvement with sport at school and that would have been very average, no different to anybody else. So you weren't playing in competitive sports? You weren't in, you know, camogie or basketball or soccer or anything like that? Not particularly, no. Played a bit of basketball in school. Yeah. Wasn't even that interested in the hockey team at school, which was the other option. Yeah. Did a bit of sailing, but, you know, real journeyman kind of yeah. stuff. But I suppose always had a bit of an interest in fitness and that kind of piece. Okay. And then gradually it started to develop. So you went from UCC, you did languages and then... I, I, I'm guessing when you finish a language course like that, lots of opportunities open up abroad in terms of, you know, commercial opportunities in terms of jobs and stuff. Absolutely. And actually one thing just on UCC is while I was there, I was very involved in the windsurfing club. I wasn't yeah. a great windsurfer, but yeah. I was very involved in the administration of it. So it was probably my first taste of sort of sports administration, if you like. Did you get a sense at that stage then that, you know, Holland or something and this, I kind of like this, you know, this organisation, this kind of event management, you know, was there kind of something floating around? That's exactly it. Like, I loved the content. So the sporting content, which I still do, is so sort of pure. There's something very enjoyable mm. and you're doing something really nice for the participants. But the administration bit of it, there's a bit of event management, there's a bit of marketing, mm. there's... All of that really hooked me in as well. And then the day of the events themselves, I suppose, seeing people there, seeing people enjoying it. And if you've helped bring a crowd, I'd imagine that makes you feel fantastic yeah, as well. Yeah, it's exciting. You're involved. You get to know people. You get to meet people. You get to feel like you helped people enjoy themselves in a sort of a really good way as well, which is nice, you know. People often underestimate the power of societies like that or even hobbies outside of school or in college or anything like that, because they can end up being part of your future career as such. Completely. And actually, now that I'm a bit older and, you know, people are coming to me for career advice or I might be hiring people, very often I look at those bits, the yeah. bits that they were doing outside of the studies, as maybe more relevant to what I might recruit them for or, or move them into, you know. 
because it gives you an indication of their, their kind of personality? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll often tell people who are interested in a career in sport, volunteer in sport, you know, get involved in a club, get involved in an event, because it's that that'll make you interesting to a, a recruiter or to somebody who is potentially looking for somebody to work with in the industry, you know. More so than actually playing the game itself. Probably more so than playing the game, yeah, because yeah, I mean, you can be very good at the game, whatever it might be, yeah. and technically very good in that, but it won't necessarily make you a good administrator, if you see what I mean. You left Ireland. Did you go to Italy? Did, am I right in saying? Yeah, so I, I studied languages, UCC. I did a one-year diploma in business in the Smurfit School in UCD. Okay. And then after a few, you know, searching around a little bit, I took a job with Board Bia, yeah. a marketing role in Italy. And spent about three years out there in that marketing role. Absolutely loved it. Was using the languages, using the marketing stuff. So it was kind of a combination of both the degrees. And what kind of Irish products were you promoting out in Italy then? So funnily enough, a lot of it is meat actually. Yeah, so it's kind of unbranded, let's say. Other things like ingredients and sort of unbranded stuff. And then on the branded side, drinks. And then some kind of speciality products are coming in, sort of cheeses and more sort of high-end items, let's say, like that. And the marketing kind of stuff. So was that like that was your first foray into marketing. So you probably did a bit of it in the diploma in Smurfit. That's it. I'd done a bit in the diploma in Smurfit, but it was the first foray into marketing. So there was a lot of sort of PR stuff, which yeah. I really enjoyed. Yeah. A lot of promotion, a lot of kind of retail promotion even yeah. and sort of in-store stuff. And we were trying to create a sort of an umbrella brand for Irish food and promote Ireland as a very sort of a green country of origin, which you know, has continued actually to be the marketing vehicle, let's say, for Irish food. Um, so really enjoyed all of that. Um, and after about three years, I was like probably kind of slightly run its course with yeah. that particular role, but loved marketing, wanted to stay on the continent. And I took a role in telecommunications in Amsterdam. So working with Orange, the mobile phone company. So change of sector, but yeah. still in a marketing role. But in Amsterdam, I'd imagine, like, you probably weren't fluent in Dutch, but English is nearly second nature to them anyway, is it? Yeah, exactly. English is second nature. And I kind of used my languages a bit, but in mm. it's a, I don't know if any of the listeners have ever lived in the Netherlands. It can be quite hard to learn Dutch because you, you try your few words and they'll reply to you in perfect English. Oh, and God. after a while, you kind of <laughs> yeah. give up. But a great place to live. Yeah. Very international. Really enjoyed it. And again, that started to move me into the next stage of my career because while I was working in a in a marketing role with Mm. Orange. They were involved quite a lot in sponsorship. So I started to look a bit more into the sponsorship side of things. And then that started to generate an interest in sports sponsorship. So it was starting to kind of funnel me in that direction. So now you were getting, I suppose you had a taste in in the societies in UCC. You know, had a taste in marketing, both with Orange and Board Bia. And you felt that you could bring the two of those together and and do a bit more. So did, did you go away then and study an MBA? That's right. So I, um, after a couple of years with Orange, I applied for and got a place with an MBA in a place called Instituto de Empresa in Madrid in Spain. So I went there. That was a full-time MBA. It was, um, but one year was 14 months actually. Yeah. And it was through English, but a lot of it was kind of with Spanish as yeah. well. So it was the opportunity to learn Spanish yeah. while I was out there. And they had a couple of modules specialising in sports marketing. So I took the opportunity there to really specialise in the sort of the learning academic bit around sports marketing. Then in terms of that MBA that you got to, I suppose, put it into practice as such. Yeah. So they really encouraged you to do to try and do a practical project. And 
I can't remember who it was introduced me, but somebody introduced me to a guy called Gerardo Seliger, who yeah. had competed uh, for Spain in the Olympics in 1972 in sailing. Yeah. And he was still very connected in sailing. And when he had competed in 1972, his sailing partner was the future king of Spain. Whoa. So obviously, I suppose, the sport of princes, yes. or whatever. So this man was very well connected in Spain. Yeah. And he was a lovely man as well. He had taken on the franchise for Swan yachts into Spain and Portugal, which is owned by Salvatore Ferragamo, the fashion brand. So a very sort of um, illustrious yes. group of people. Yeah. So myself and another friend from the MBA, our project was helping him do the sort of launch in Spain of this sort of luxury yacht brand. Really fascinating. At our launch party, Ferragamo was there and the King of Spain was there and the launch party was in Palma in Mallorca. Lovely. So it was, yeah. you know, we were kind of sleeping on the boat because that yeah. was the best we could get, but it was still a sort of a fabulous experience. Met all these very interesting people. It, like learnt a lot through the project, although yeah. it was so sort of high end and targeted at such high net worth individuals. Yeah. It was clear to us even then that, you know, we'd probably never get back to that yes. position over the course of the rest of our careers. But but very interesting and a chance to sort of put stuff into practice as well. But I'd imagine it opened doors as well. Did it, it potentially made connections there that? it it Yeah, it absolutely did. You know, I suppose it put, it was a kind of a high profile project. Yeah. Um, and at the time I was you know, sort of coming towards the end of the MBA, it was very clear then that I loved marketing, wanted to stay in it, but it was very much in the sports industry. That was what I wanted to do. And that project was a great calling card then to other prospective employers to say, hey, look, this is who I am, my career to date, what I've done and what I'm interested in. And um, somebody back in Ireland connected me uh, with a guy called Finton Drury, who had a sports marketing agency. And he and I had some conversations and then... When I left the MBA, I joined his business, but setting up their offices in Spain. So I stayed out in Spain, but setting up the sort of Spanish arm of that company. So now you were bringing the Irish connection and the Spanish connection together. So you kind of had, I suppose, you were you were great for him because you had connections in Spain, mm. plus you had the language. But I suppose Platinum One, an Irish company, I suppose, what did they want to do in Spain in terms of, you know, what impact did they think they were going to make on this big I suppose, a very well-known sporting country. Um, what did they want to achieve? Yeah, so it's a great question because it probably wasn't fully clear, but it was obvious that Spain is very big in football, soccer world. Yes. And perhaps the value could be almost in what, what could Spain bring the other way around? Yes. So bring back up to Ireland or yeah. the UK, which is where we also had a, a base. So I, through my contacts, um, through the MBA, I managed to make contact with both FC Barcelona and Real Madrid and established a connection with both of those. Two of the biggest football teams in the world. Two of the biggest football teams in the world. So the contract that we eventually agreed, this is 2007 now, so going back a little while, was that FC Barcelona would come over for their pre-season to Scotland um, and play two matches in Scotland as part of their pre-season training camp. So you would organise the camp and organise the matches? Is that how it would work? Exactly. So we would basically, they wanted to do what they called cold weather training. That was the height of summer in Scotland. It was July, but for them that was cold weather (laughs) training. And stay somewhere nice and be together as a team. Yeah. And we would pay for that for them. Okay. And organise it for them. 
but then they would also play two matches and then we would use the revenue from the matches to monetize the whole thing and hopefully make a profit. So that was how it That's how it would work. Broadly work. So their first match was going to be against Hearts of Midlothian in Murrayfield Stadium, the, yeah. the rugby stadium. And we were very lucky in that we agreed the deal and then I think either just before the tickets went on sale or when they went on sale, Thierry Henry moved from Arsenal to FC Barcelona. Oh, that was a huge Remember sign. that? Yeah. And we sold half the tickets that day, basically. Whoa. I think to this day it remains the biggest ever soccer match in Edinburgh. We effectively filled Murrayfield Stadium. And how big is Murrayfield? Um, I think it's 65,000. Yeah, yeah. it, it would be bigger than Hart's own pitch. I'd oh, imagine yeah, much they're, bigger. they're smaller stadiums. Yeah, yeah. much bigger. And the, the big soccer stadiums in Scotland are in Glasgow, basically, not in Edinburgh. Yeah. Um, so that was a huge match and then their second match was against Dundee United at home which was also a sellout but a sellout of I can't remember exactly but maybe 13,000 or something seater stadium so that was um, a big success they stayed in St Andrews and lovely spot yeah, yeah. All, everybody had a good time and it was a, it was the real superstar days of Barcelona or the beginnings of it as well Messi was there and Xavi and all of those guys the, the teams that started to end up winning the Champions League exactly for a good number of years over over that period of time yeah. as well so they were global superstars global superstars so that was a huge kind of landmark moment for the company and also it was profitable and all that so it worked really well we did it again in 2008 also brought them back to Scotland um, they wanted to stay in the same place in St yeah. Andrews which they did and it was great Second time around, they played Hibs and Dundee United. Not quite as big because second year running can yeah. be hard to pull off, yeah. um, but still worked very well. And then in 2009, and again, probably some of the listeners will remember this, we brought Real Madrid to Ireland. That's right, yeah. And it was very similar. Did the deal with Real Madrid. And then after we had done the deal, it was announced that Cristiano Ronaldo was moving to Real Madrid. And he broke so, my heart, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so his first ever match for Real Madrid was going to be against Shamrock Rovers yeah. in Tallis Stadium. And we were really up against it because we didn't have a stadium of any reasonable capacity. That's the Aviva right. Stadium wasn't built and for different reasons, they couldn't kind of move around the country. But we put in temporary seating into Tallis, which at the time wasn't even the size it is now. Yeah. And I think that remains the fastest ever selling match in Ireland. So we sold all of the tickets in a minute, I Whoa. think it was. It was just, but again, it was huge profile. They stayed in Carton House, Cristiano Ronaldo's first match. And again, kind of huge profile for the company, which was great. I mean, we could have sold the Aviva Stadium. Yeah, it's or a pity in many ways it's, because it's so small a stadium, you know, like it, it wouldn't have been that profitable in terms of what it could have been. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you had the Aviva now with 54,000. Yes, Absolutely. And you probably couldn't talk to the GA at the time. I'd imagine they wouldn't have allowed you to. No, there were some kind of discussions, all right, but just the detail of it was just too hard yes. to, to pull off. And subsequently then the FAI themselves for the following few years organised those pre-seasons themselves because they were sort of quite profitable. And That's I, when I, the Aviva opened and stuff, is that's it? That's right, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I would have helped them a bit then with the likes of the Liverpool-Celtic match and that, yeah. but then on more of a consultancy basis, they were the actual promoters yes. subsequently of those matches. Then going into 2010, I left that company Platinum One and at that point went out on my own. That was a big move for you. Having, uh, I suppose Platinum One would have been well-renowned in, in the sporting sector. So you'd, you had that going with, but it's still, it's still a gamble. Yeah, still a gamble. Um, I get, suppose you get to a certain point and you, it's nice to work for yourself. Yes. And there was a guy that I had been very friendly with all, for years through sailing and through sports, a guy called Dave McHugh, who had his own business 
So Dave and myself went in a partnership together with Lineup Sports. And that was where I went to in 2010. And for the last three or four years now, I've had leading sport, but I remain a director of Lineup Sports okay. and Dave is a director of leading sport. And we remain very good sort of friends and partners. Yeah. But over the last couple of years now, it's slightly different businesses. So in 2010, what was the goal with Lineup Sports? I suppose there was kind of three strands to it. So there was the sort of an events bit. So yeah. bringing in all that experience from the likes of those pre-season matches and that. Then there was a sponsorship bit, so working with commercial partners. And Dave in particular would have represented a lot of athletes, professional athletes. So either elite amateurs like Olympians or professional, for example, rugby players. Platinum One would have done quite a bit of that representation piece as well. So there was that. And then finally, there was a sort of a consultancy piece. So a kind of a strategic consultancy around sports development, strategic direction, that kind of part. So those were the the strands to the business. So you kind of brought, you had, I suppose with Dave, you had some clients and your, I suppose your contacts were in Platinum One that was able to get you doors opened fairly quick, I'd imagine. Yeah, exactly. It was a good combination. So exactly that, we both sort of brought some bits of business that came with us. And then together we sort of opened other doors. And thinking back like 2010, 2011, it wasn't a great time. In the middle of a recession. Middle of recession, but... um, And and those years were probably the toughest, actually. When I think back, 2011, 2012, they were kind of real, you know, at the bottom kind of when we came rising back up after 2013. Yeah. And like one interesting thing, and I I always used to say this pre-COVID anyway, was that sport is relatively recession-proof because the activity keeps happening. Okay, there might be less money for the, you know, expensive tickets to expensive matches. But the core of it keeps going and sport's always really important in people's lives. So there's always a certain part of it that's probably quite resilient to things going up and down. And I would have said that until COVID when obviously we saw a bit of a shutdown. But even then it picked up again pretty quickly, you know, because people need it, kind of need it in their lives. And I suppose that's one of the things I've always enjoyed about working in sport as well. It's quite kind of pure that way Mm. that content matter is good, you know. With lineup sports going back then, mm. who was your clients or who were you focused on? Was it was it commercial sector? Was it companies that were looking to try and get involved in sponsoring? Was it sports organisations or was it players? Or- yeah, it's a bit of a mixture. So one part, I suppose, was players. Yeah. So we, this would be more Dave's part now, to be fair, than mine. But we would help them on two sides. So either contract negotiations yeah. or commercial endorsements. Okay. So there's kind of two bits to that. And then the commercial endorsement bit also had us interfacing a lot with commercial entities and brands. Yeah. So we might end up doing then more sort of sponsorship work with them. So they might be looking for an agency that will help them activate their sponsorship, but around a particular sporting entity. Yeah. So there was quite a bit around that. And then sometimes we were involved as well in um, sort of event promotion and either on behalf of somebody else, in which case you get paid for it and that's fine or else as the promoter ourselves and actually often what happens there is that for every successful event you promote like a Real Madrid thing there might be 10 ideas that you work on for Mm -hmm. ages and you know yourself and but nine of them actually don't come to pass so there's a lot of work there but there might only be one thing you can talk about a few years later if you see what I mean and then on the consulting side clients might be local authorities or national governing bodies or Sport Ireland, for example, where we would work with them on maybe the strategic development of a sport. And that could be, you know, across the entirety of it. So on the governance side, commercial, grassroots, more the performance end, 
but helping the sport develop across a kind of a range of ways. And that ultimately has become a much bigger part of what I do, yeah. in fact, but very much sort of strategic and quite kind of consultancy based in, and I suppose from a commercial perspective, then you're charging by the day or by the project sort of thing. So did you come back to Cork after being away for, for years and said, OK, what am I going to do back here? I'm going to set up my own. Yeah, kind of. There were a couple of years um, where I was based in London. So okay. I was kind of travelling between Dublin and Cork in London. And there was a lot of good contacts made there as yeah. well in terms of the sporting world and other projects, some of which came to pass and some of which didn't. Yes. But ultimately, I found myself working with more and more governing bodies, okay. helping them um, write strategic plans for the, their organisations and working more and more with Sport Ireland, either on their behalf with the governing body or working on, you know, kind of broader strategic sporting projects for the entire nation, let's say. And also after, I suppose, many years of working in football, I had started to do a few projects for UEFA and ultimately then that led to some pro- a big project with FIFA yeah. and also with FIBA, the International Basketball Asso- Association. So in more recent years, I've found myself working more or less exclusively with those bigger organisations. Now I spend a lot of my time working with both UEFA and Sport Ireland are probably my two biggest clients. And I would work with them on fairly sort of big strategic projects. So, for example, with Sport Ireland recently, together with another consultant, we wrote the high performance strategy. So that would be the strategy for developing high performance. So like Olympic and Paralympic sports for the entire nation. And that's a 10 year strategy. So, you know, sort of quite big picture Mm. strategic Mm. development. With UEFA, I'm a UEFA strategic development partner. So I would work on behalf of UEFA, let's say, with certain countries. So I have four Scandinavian countries that I work with. And I have a UEFA email address and branding and all of that. So for many people, it would probably appear that they I think work you're part time. of the organisation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I would work on their behalf, helping them develop particularly those four countries. So structure is a massive thing for these organisations in terms of we all see the, you know, the, the Champions League or the Olympic Games or, you know, we see all the money that's floating around with the big global brands and, you know, these superstars. But ultimately, their goal is to get the grassroots operating the way it should be, I'd imagine. Yeah, Absolutely. And you can't have a performance end without a proper grassroots end. So it's getting the whole thing working together effectively is really important. And, you know, I suppose governmental goals for grassroots are really to get more people more active more often and have a healthy nation in that. And those are sporting goals as well. And then ideally you want to have a functioning pathway that will move some people into a sort of a performance end of the sport. Yeah. And if that performance end is doing well, and winning medals and winning tournaments, that'll inspire more young kids to get involved. And so the healthy, uh, virtuous circle will continue. But it has to be underpinned by good governance. You know, a lot of the problems in sport generally are caused by poor governance and then ideally supported commercially so that the the thing can pay for itself. And And have you found out a problem? Because obviously you mentioned UEFA and FIFA Mm. and in particular FIFA has Mm. come under a lot of scrutiny in recent years. You know, are they trying to fix that? Yeah. How how did you feel dealing with an organisation when at the very top, you know, you had people that were abusing their position of power? Yeah. So the work I did with FIFA was since 
2018, so it was yes. since FIFA 2.0, as they yeah, call it. So yeah. the new FIFA with the new strategy and plan. And I particularly worked with them on the women's game, which has been part of their strategy as well to yes. grow and kind of move forward in a you know cleaner way, let's say. Yeah. So I think they've done huge efforts to like to really sort out their governance and improve it. Yeah. As I think actually many, many sports have yeah. globally, yeah. it's been a real focus, but you still see things happening. It's, I suppose human nature, yeah. humans yeah. are fallible and get tempted by the wrong thing, but you can still see in pockets how it can... Yeah. Was a lot of that corruption down. as a result of people who probably weren't strategic like yourself in terms of didn't have that commercial acumen that ended up kind of volunteering and then getting more power and more power and ending up in this huge position without really having earned it as such. Yeah, quite possibly. And like a huge amount of the work that the big sporting federations will do now as well as putting in really good um, capacity building programmes and education and that so that the people coming through are much more professionalised, let's say, and have much better tools and skills to equip themselves to to govern better and, and they follow code better. of ethics and things like that as All well. That. Yeah. You talked about, you know, the women's game in particular. Mm. I'm also thinking that they're probably seeing there's a huge potential return on investment and investment in that game as well, is there? Massively. Like the, it's the biggest growth area yeah. in soccer. Yeah. And in many other sports. Yeah. So and it's so untapped, like it's not just even for players, but also for coaches, referees, yes. administrators, all the rest. So there's a huge growth area and then commercially you can see it starting to turn now that particularly in the UK there's been some really big commercial deals mm. recently around the women's game but even in Ireland as well there have been. Yeah. So that whole area is really interesting one of big opportunity. The last Women's World Cup was probably a game changer in that regard was it in terms of it got a lot of profile on TV and some stars especially the American team and uh, you know and that's what you need is probably a star you need f- you need a few stars exactly and um and a bit of commercial backing like mm. um i noted that time of the women's world cup that on fifa the game yes that they put in the women's game they just inserted it so yeah. like my kids who were playing didn't perceive any different yeah. difference between the yeah. men's and the women so yeah. that's where you'd like to see it go that so, but kind of clever marketing tools can help as well to to promote it and push it where it needs to be. The women's pay, I know, for the Irish sport is like as in the Irish soccer team, mm-hmm. they're just, they're getting the same as as the men. Are we so? Are you seeing more of that type of thing happening as well? Yeah, you're definitely seeing more of that. You know, in some countries already, like Australia, New Zealand, across a number of sports, would be very good on that kind yeah. of equal pay. I think what's important to note as well is that it isn't just about equal pay because you yeah. can sort that out but it needs to be equal terms as well so and everything facilities and stuff facilities, and travel and coaching yeah. travel strength conditioning everything that yeah. goes into it that you're not just taking from one pot and putting yeah. it into a different pot that you know all of the the underpinning bits are good as well and like if you were advising Irish businesses do you think now is the time to get involved and, and, and back you know for example, or, or the Irish women's soccer team, because, you know, it could be like what we saw in 1990 in the next couple of years, we could see this huge success. Yeah, absolutely. And it's an opportunity still to stand out and be different. Yeah. And like if you look at some of the brands, let's say in Gaelic Games that have supported like Littlewoods or Liberty that have supported both Camogie and Hurling, yeah. they've done very Lidl, well Lidl at doing did that. did as well, didn't they? Yeah. yeah. Or going in just on the women's game, you'll get publicity and coverage that yeah. you mightn't get from 
you know, a smaller men's only property, let's say at this time. So the opportunity for sure is there. I know there was a 2020 strategic uh, guide put up a couple of years ago. Mm. Were you involved in that as well? I was. So um, one other thing that I do at the present time is a, in a volunteer capacity is I'm on the board of the Federation of Irish Sport. Yeah. And we're the representative organisation for governing bodies. Yeah. So I'm on that as an independent director. But we um, developed that campaign together with an agency, Along Came a Spider. Yeah. So 20 by 20 and that yeah. um, had the strapline can't see, can't be. Yeah. But that was huge in terms of visibility and it really caught the kind of public imagination and really pushed women, the women's game and women's sport forward over the course of that two years approximately in a way that we hadn't seen before. And that was a commitment by media as well to, to showcase more women's sport on TV, radio, print as well. Yeah, yeah. So the governing bodies pretty much across all sports committed to it that they would yeah. get behind it and then the media committed to it. A number of big sponsors came on board to help pay for it basically and kind of yeah. drive the visibility. So it was huge. It, absolutely great campaign. It got picked up globally as well. So there's people out in South Africa and New Zealand and other places talking about that campaign, which is great as well, because it makes Ireland look rightly like it's yeah. leading in in many areas, which is a really nice place to be. And you personally, how do you find, because I'd imagine it's still very male dominated in, in corporate structures and sport. Yeah. Like, have you found it improve or like, or is there still a bit to go? There's probably still a bit to go. Like, I've found it improve a lot in the course of my career. Firstly, just even in professionalisation that more and more people working in sport are professionals rather than yes. volunteers and I've great time for volunteers I'm a volunteer myself, yeah, myself in lots yeah. of sports but overall the more people that are, can put their full time into the job it's going to make the end yeah. result better because yeah. yeah. they're putting it, you know, their time into it full time and then secondly just from a kind of a male female perspective it used to be that it was very male dominated and, you know, you'd stand out a bit or be a bit unusual about yeah. why you were working in the area or perhaps your opinion wouldn't be taken as seriously. And I think that we've moved on a lot from that as well, that that has passed, that, you know, people will ask my opinion on um, not just the women's game, if you see what I mean, but across the entire piece. Which is brilliant because yeah. that would have automatically been the thing before. Oh, Maeve, can you talk about the women's exactly. game? Exactly. Yeah. Whereas no, they're taking, and you even see that actually on TV as well. We're seeing a lot more female pundits, like Lisa Fallon, who who I would know from Cork City yeah. and stuff before, appearing on TV a lot more. Yeah, absolutely. even for the men's game, which is which which is great. Yeah, uh, for lot and for the, for different sports. Yeah, and I think even just over the course of the last five years, that that's normalised. You know, so yeah. there's maybe five years ago it might have been noteworthy, and now it's just sort it's of normal yeah. business as you go, isn't it? Which is great. So you've been on a number of different boards. Have you? Did, did I see you were involved in boards in the UK as well and some sort of London Irish? Uh... Yeah, that's right. So I guess, and again, maybe it's a sign of getting older and giving yeah. a little bit back yeah. sort of thing. But when I was in the UK, I was on the board of a charity there, the London yeah. Irish Centre. So it's the biggest um, charity helping Irish in the UK. And it, it might become obsolete because a lot of it was about helping that generation of people who went over in the 50s, 60s, 70s, maybe 80s yeah. to a lot of them are quite elderly now and much more of the focus of that charity now is almost um, kind of contemporising and showing Irish culture in that yes. in the UK. Yeah. I had started out volunteering with sort of elderly Irish people who lived in my locality there to kind of be, befriend them basically and then 
ultimately they asked me if I would go on the board. So that was really interesting. President Higgins was our president over all of the charity and Dermot O'Leary was the patron. And so oh, anyway, yeah, so really yeah. interesting people involved. And I have been on the board of the National Sports Campus. So that was... Um, in Abbottstown? In Abbottstown. Yeah. From probably about 2012 to 2015. So that was a ministerial appointment. Like I applied to yeah. the public appointment service and was appointed. Yeah. And again, that was really good experience for me, a bit younger at the time and yeah. proper state, semi-state board. Yeah. Ultimately then the National Sports Campus merged with Sport Ireland and became, so it's now under the remit of Sport Ireland. Yeah. And I'm on my second term now serving on the Federation of Irish Sport board as well. So again, as a volunteer, but obviously it's very much kind of part of what I do. So um, it's a really interesting one to be involved in. I'm guessing being on boards though kind of opens your mind up to other stuff as well, whether it's, you know, charitable things, whether it's, you know, for the better of our nation or whatever. I'd imagine it gets you thinking, you know, it gives you that time and maybe away from your own business to kind of refresh your your own kind of ideas and opinions. Yeah, it does. I mean, it feels strategic, let's say, in that way. And, you know, the other people that you're meeting are senior and strategic. You're volunteers, you're giving of your time. And I suppose that feels right at a certain stage in your career you're starting to give yeah. a little bit back sort yeah. of thing and also it's kind of on message or you know it's part of the sector as well so I guess you're being useful in terms of your contribution yes. and um, and at the same time the profile is probably useful as well in return so um, but as you say it is good thinking time and you meet interesting other people and you can you know potentially generate some good ideas on the Federation of Irish Sport, actually, I also sit on the Commercial and Communications Committee. So we yeah. spend a bit of time specifically on that, looking at sort of commercial and marketing yeah. ideas for Irish sport as well. So that's quite interesting. What a lot of people on the outside might be thinking about sport is like when they see the government investing in, you know, sport and high performance athletes and they say, OK, we win a gold medal like in the Olympics or, or the hockey team wins in the World Cup, in, in, you know, or something happens, a sailing event, what's the actual return on investment for the the Irish public? Yeah. You know, what, what, you know where where does it make money? You know, like, I suppose we can see where La Liga, the Premier mm. League, and we can see that that brings in lots of tourists and mm. we can see, but from an individual sport context, you know, or maybe some of the amateur sports, like what, what's the return what's on investment? So it's easier to quantify if the event is taking place in Ireland. Okay. So like, for example, the America's Cup event that's being mooted for Cork. Yes. You can draw out a decent economic analysis yeah. of what that might yeah. bring in terms of actual bed nights and, you know, people coming in to stay yeah. for the event. Other tourists will come as a result of seeing it on TV. Yeah. What the media value worldwide is worth because of it being seen yeah. on TV and so on. So that one in a way is a bit easier to quantify. But then the idea of, you know, uh, two rowers out in Tokyo winning a gold medal, what's that medal worth? And those ones are a little bit harder to quantify in a way because they're about soft power. You know, it's about Ireland being seen as an important country on the world stage because it's out there at the Olympics and Paralympics winning medals. So it's a serious country. So there's that kind of piece to it. And that's internationally, let's say. Where, and then domestically, there's a piece around, I suppose, sort of national pride. Mm. So Irish people feeling good to be Irish because we are out there yeah. globally yeah. winning gold medal or winning the, in the hockey or whatever, like you said. And then there's the sort of inspiring the future generation. So 
again, using the rowing example, rowing is booming for the last number of years. You can't get into a club because yeah, yeah, young kids are looking at it and going, God, I want to be that yeah. guy. But, you know, any sport that does well inspires people, we hope, to be active themselves and, you so, know, live so a healthy life. are we looking at it from a, it can help in terms of reduce uh, medical problems or like a better way of life, people live healthier. Yeah, that's one of the outcomes. And like sport, apart from the health stuff, so being yeah. active obviously okay. is good for you and it'll keep you out of hospital yeah. in the long term, but it keeps you mentally engaged, yeah. socially included, part of a community. Yeah. Um, and you can get that even by volunteering in a sport yes. or just being the person on the sidelines. Yeah. But there's so much kind of positive sort of social inclusion, mental health benefits, yeah. community engagement type stuff that is really, really important about sport as well, apart from health and activity benefits. And I'm guessing, you know, people are always saying, well, young people in particular, teenagers, will try and keep them out of trouble. I suppose sport acts as a great, safe environment for, for kids to kind of find themselves as they get older as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. People find their tribe and, you know, it can be any sport. Mm. And if you look like a sport like road bowling yeah. and it can keep you out and engaged up yeah. till the age of 80 in your yeah. local community yeah. and you could be from a different kind of a socioeconomic background or whatever or swimming cradle to grave you can learn it when you're a baby and you can still be doing it in your 80s so there's loads of there's loads of sports out there for all sorts of people that will keep you engaged right through your your whole life you know when you're working with say the sports council mm. is it hard then for some of the smaller minority sports, you know, for them to have their voice versus, say, for example, the GAA or the IRFU, you know, or the FEI, like they're much bigger entities yeah. and have so many participants. Yeah, they're what's known as, I suppose, the big three. So GAA, yeah. FAI and IRFU and they're similar in that they're field sports and they've got big numbers and yeah. totally different probably commercial setups as well because yeah. of how they're run and even how they're funded to a certain extent. And then the other sports are in kind of together. Yeah. But some, even within that range, and athletics would be very big through to uh, Aikido or something that could be very small. Mm. And actually that's where the local sports partnerships and we've very good one in Cork, the Cork Local Sports Partnerships, yeah. really help as well because they'll help work on sporting programmes and smaller programmes, maybe around a smaller sport yeah. or for a smaller demographic of perhaps older people or people from a minority or something, but they'll help deliver really decent programmes on the ground in lots of local communities. And they'd be hoping for maybe the success that maybe like the rowing has had because, I mean, nobody would have associated Skibbereen with rowing mm. and now it's the hub, like in terms of just like a centre of excellence down there. Other sports probably could be inspired from that, I'd imagine. Other sports could be inspired, exactly. And, you know, they'll look at what were the factors maybe that yeah. has contributed to rowing success. Um and I suppose, and this would be a lot of the work that I would do as well in kind of strategic development work, but there's probably certain things that are commonalities across all sports. So you need decent coaching, yeah. you know, and good coaches will, will really help. But how are you going to find the coaches and develop them and educate them? You need a, a kind of a grassroots piece. So you need new, younger people coming through all the time. So how are you working on that and how are you developing it? Yeah, Those two bits are almost your two most important bits. But then... You know, a lot of people, when they think about a sport, they'll focus on the kind of high end and the performance end. But if you can get participants and young people doing it you and properly coached, that's already a really good basis for, for starting off, combined with some good governance and maybe a little bit of commercial acumen. And that already will kind of 
start to take you places. Like I'd imagine people listening to this podcast, there's probably at least I'd imagine fifty percent of them are going to be involved in some sporting organisation, mm. whether that's a local tennis club, golf club, GA club, soccer club, whatever, athletics club, swimming club. Does it make sense for them to kind of put a plan together, you know, even for a small club, but maybe only 40, 50 people involved to put a plan together and say, look, this is our plan for the next five, ten years. This is where we want to go. Should even small clubs like that do things like that? I would say absolutely. And it doesn't have to be a big convoluted plan. This could be a two pager, but at least everyone knows then what you're working towards and even what your kind of culture and ethos is and what your mindset is. You know, there's that thing about um, planning to fail and failing to plan. Yeah. Can't remember exactly what it is, but basically if you fail to plan, you're guaranteed you won't get your success because you actually won't know where you're trying to go or how you're going to get there. Roy Keane was famous for saying that at one stage. He was right probably in many ways. Yeah. You know, fail to prepare, prepare to fail. That was was it, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. So, so I would say yes. And it, but uh, you know, and it doesn't have to be massively complicated. It can be something pretty easy, but like, who's your target audience? And some of it's basic marketing. How are you going to communicate with them? How are you going to get them in the club? How are you going to get them to stay? Yeah. How are you going to make sure they have a good time? And how are you going to develop them and, you know, kind of work with them? Should they, even the small clubs like that, should they be always thinking about how do we make money f- to sustain the club? Sh- should they be looking at sponsorship opportunities, even even if you only have, let's say, 40 or 50 people? Should they look at sponsorship opportunities? Absolutely, because even within a community like that of 40 to 50, there's probably somebody within that 40 to 50 who says, you know what, I'll, I'll put my small company's yes. name on the jerseys. Yeah. For 500 euro or something. Yeah. But that 500 euro might be enough to to just do something quite significant within the club. So it doesn't it doesn't have to be huge money or something very sophisticated. But even that a community like that can help itself. And maybe it's not classic sponsorship. Maybe it's more like patronage where yeah. somebody's giving something for no huge return. But it's always worth looking at. And a lot of that happens. You know, you know there's a lot of golf days or different things like that. And people sponsor a tea box or or whatever it is, or to sponsor a raffle prize, or, you know, I often wonder, maybe, are small businesses missing an opportunity with sport as well, in terms of using it, without taking advantage, but I suppose they should probably take advantage Mm. as well, but, you know, is there huge potential there, in terms of getting, uh, big brand awareness in your area, uh, through sport? Absolutely, because, like, most clubs, are probably well anchored in their community. Yeah. They are community clubs. And within your own community is where you need to be working and yeah. where you need to be seen or probably want to be seen. So the opportunity to both support your club and be seen to be doing the right thing, so getting return for your sponsorship, let's say, yeah. can be really significant. And it can be your local cricket club or your local football club or whatever. It doesn't um, It doesn't have to be on a national scale but it can be at the right dimensions for you and your business locally. And did you see any success stories in particular that stood out for you? If you even go back to line-up sports, you know, Platinum One, was there any sponsorship deals that you were involved in? You said, yeah, that was a clever move by them. I think, I, we weren't involved in this, but it's one that everybody will know, but I think the Lidl supporter sport one, that yeah. that really caught the public imagination yeah. and was really well done and even just from the launch where there was the kind of ironic launch that maybe got people's back up a bit with the pink ball and the girl. That's right. and yeah. 
each time they've produced a sort of a different campaign so it's now the level playing field one at the moment with yeah. the kind of uphill pitch and yeah, all of that Yeah it looks like they're going up a side of a mountain playing for playing Gaelic football yeah, yeah. so thing, I think that has been a really successful one both for ladies football and for Lidl that yeah. has really stood out but I mentioned it earlier I think Liberty also in the being the first to kind of take on both Camogie and Hurling yeah. I think that was very effective it's harder to pull out kind of smaller local ones because I guess people won't kind of necessarily have That's heard right, of them yeah, yeah. But, but I there's, think there's probably many examples of small local ones that are really effective you know but even on that on that national stage, mm. I mean, it, it was interesting. You went into Platinum One in two thousand and five, but mm. it was towards the end of that decade, I'd say, that really the GA kind of said, "Hold on a second, we're sitting on a we're sitting on a bit of a cash cow here in terms of the the All Ireland, and they put all these Platinum partners in, you know, Guinness and Super Value, and you know, sport became quite serious in mm. this country all of a sudden, even in the amateur game." Yeah, and I think with very effective kind of campaigns backing them as well. Yeah. So, about, you know, super value ones, but really being at the heart of your community yeah. and all of that. So they really got the sort of values bit very well. So they managed, you know, to, I suppose, use those sponsorships very effectively to underpin the values of both the brand and the sport that it was sponsoring. Going forward with leading sport, what's the plan? So you actually asked me earlier and I, I didn't kind of answer it at the time but about kind of moving back to Cork and that yeah. and I probably got to a certain point in my career where I went you actually don't have to be based in London yes. or even Dublin to work in sports. You can for me luckily I, I suppose I'd established enough of a name that it actually didn't matter to my clients where I was as long as yeah. I turned up if you see yeah. what I mean and, and was producing the output. So that was and obviously I'm from Cork was dying to move back so that was all a good catalyst um, and actually, I think COVID in a way has probably helped a little bit as well to sort of decentralise people's thinking. Yeah. So it matters now even less probably where, where you're, you're based. And as long as you're still producing the work yeah. and producing the goods. So like it's a bit of a constant dilemma for people in small businesses. You know, do I keep going and keep doing what I'm doing? Yeah. Do I expand this by hiring other people? Or what, and you know, so. And where are you right now in terms? Of, is it just you, or have you other people? Working it's for? it's just me on the payroll, if you see what I mean. But then okay. there's senior, quite senior people who I would bring in on projects, yes. and who will kind of white label themselves into my company, so they look like they work for the company. Yes, but I don't have them on a permanent payroll. I just bring them in on certain projects. Yeah. So that works quite well for me, and um, and equally, actually, there's other people who might ask me to join them in a project, and sometimes I will. In a similar vein to the way you have the UEFA email address and stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So UEFA would be a... And then I have certain big clients, I suppose, like UEFA that are contracted and yeah. I would spend quite a chunk of my time working for them. Um, and then others that I'll work for on a kind of a project-by-project project basis, yeah. like Sport Ireland, I yeah. mentioned I do a bit of work for. So at the moment, I'm probably in a very happy space. I'm The balance feels right for me. I can manage it all quite well from my own base yeah. in Cork I used to do a lot of travelling yeah. um, and that hasn't really picked up yet fully since Covid it's just kind of starting to starting to happen um, so it's important for me the airport reopens uh, I'll time it for when the airport reopens I, so I think for now I'm quite happy kind of continuing as I am yeah. um, the UEFA work gives me the nice feeling of having colleagues because I'm part of an organisation yes. and I can tap into stuff but I still have the nice benefit of not having to manage a massive team and all the HR yeah. obligations that go yeah. with that. 
So I think for now I'm happy to to proceed along this path and it it sort of remains very enjoyable and or even gets better all the time, you know. So I have two questions for people every week. Mm. Um, the first question is, what piece of advice would you give another business? So in, in particular, let's say, you know, I'm looking at yourself and maybe for the person that's the one person show, mm. you know, what piece of advice would you even give them? I think the one person show, I would say you have to be highly organised from the point of view that as my friend Dave says, you're you're driving the bus and selling the tickets. Yes. So you've got to make sure that there's a right balance of kind of sales and operations basically so that you're um, getting enough work in, but you're also managing it effectively into the standards you and your client want. So there's probably an element of that of knowing when to say no as well and knowing mm. when to cap things off so that you don't overwhelm yourself in one direction or another. You'd have a lot of different skills now from yeah. the different positions you've had over the years. But now do you find yourself, well, I can't do everything here. Like I'll get someone else to do that bit for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's very much, I suppose what I focus in on is that kind of strategic development end. Yeah. And then some of the other bits I will ask somebody else to come in and help me with. Yeah. Or sometimes I will even say to the client, look, I'm not going to do that bit, but yeah. here's somebody you can talk to directly who can do that bit for you. So I'll connect them with somebody, yeah. you know, so sort them out, but, but step out as well. So again, it doesn't become too overwhelming. So the other question is, what tip would you give an individual? So what was really interesting with yourself is that you didn't come from a background in sport, mm. but no, it's very much your life. It's yeah. your career. What advice would you give people? So... I would, I get a lot of people coming to ask me for advice and I'll generally try and give it as well. And a lot of people who are very interested in sport because they're playing it to a very good level. Mm. And I've mentioned this earlier in the conversation, I would say to those people and to anybody, try and get some sports administration experience. So volunteering in your club as opposed to just playing for it. Yeah. You know, volunteering at an event, if you if you obviously get paid for it if you can, but if yeah. you can't, like volunteer your time to be there. So you actually have experience of the kind of administration, operations and marketing end of sport. Yeah. Because everybody has an opinion on sport, so that doesn't differentiate yes. you. Everybody likes it. So that's, yeah. And a lot of people play it. So again, that doesn't really differentiate you unless you're going down more of a technical route and you want to become a something on the more technical side. So you know, perhaps in coaching or refereeing or officiating or something. And do you think it's something that you should try and develop in early life as in just coming out of college? Because I know a lot of, let's say, professional sports stars will try mm. and get into consultancy after they finish the game. Mm. Is there an advantage for someone that does it be, be, in their 20s kind of? I think there is. And like certainly a lot of the athletes that we would work with as well, we'd you know, there's a lot more focus now on kind of player transition so that we'd be working with them even during their playing career to yeah. make sure that their yeah. educational um, part is being developed as well yeah. so that by the time they're ready to transition out of their career, they'll know what they want to go into and they'll have developed the skills to go with it. And you'd actually see a lot of the bigger organisations, again, the UEFAs and stuff, really putting a lot of effort into player transition now so that the players aren't just being thrown out into the hole at the end of their playing yeah, career yeah. they're actually moving into something very rewarding and significant for them that they've been kind of preparing for simultaneously And a lot more players seem to be kind of very I suppose aware of the commercial side of the business as well maybe it's true 
building audiences for themselves on social media. Is there a lot of training involved in that area nowadays? Yeah, that that would be really big, all right, and an area that players obviously often will need a lot of support with. And often the governing body will have one set of supports and probably a set of rules as well around what they'll allow. And then the players will need to have their own individual profile as well for commercial reasons. So it's about managing those two elements. Um, And that's a really big area. And, you know, it's one that we would, and again, particularly in lineup sports, would work a lot with, Dave would work a lot with the athletes on making sure that that piece is is working for them. And do they have people then that kind of manage their, I suppose, communications for the professional athletes, I suppose, or do they have to get to a certain level? How does that work? The bigger ones would have people who manage them for them. Yeah. But sometimes it's family members. Um, yes, they, they bring know. in other people. Yeah. yeah, like this very well-known Premier League player and his sister actually works in UEFA. I'd know her a bit. And she does his social media stuff. And yeah. obviously she's a highly trained communications yeah. expert as well. It's a growing, it's a growing industry. Yeah. It's interesting when you got in probably in 2005 into this industry, you know, coming out of that NBA, it probably was a small sector compared to now. Oh yeah, absolutely. Or people didn't really, hadn't heard of it. I wasn't really yeah. sure what I did or that yeah. kind of thing. Whereas now, yeah, you know, you can study it on degree courses and master's courses and there's um, there are many more jobs available in the area. I mean, one thing I would say is people think sport, oh, it's really well paid and it is if you're an elite athlete and you're earning top prize money. Yes. But even if you're a second tier athlete, you probably don't earn that much. And yeah. a lot of the administrators, coaches, refs and all that don't necessarily earn that much money, yeah. but earn fine money. And it's very rewarding from a mental perspective because yeah. the core subject matter is so nice, yeah. you know. It's something that they're interested in. Yeah, exactly. But ultimately, if they really spend, as you said, spend time volunteering, doing a bit of work, that potentially they could be like yourself and, and get into, you know, a consultancy business, create their own or get into some sort of sports marketing form. Exactly, exactly, and develop their own profile. It's been fantastic to speak to you, Maeve. Um, really interesting world. Um, you know, people often kind of see sport in this country as, as kind of a, a, an amateur thing. Um, and, I, and I think you've definitely shown us in, on today's podcast that um, it's something to be taken very serious. And I think there's huge potential in this country as we move forward. So thanks a million for coming in. My pleasure. And actually, just a final word just on the potential for this country. Irish people internationally are perceived really positively in this industry um, for multiple reasons probably because we've had such great sports stars on the international stage so as an Irish person out there you can definitely do it Great to hear Yeah Thanks Thanks a million Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the 24 Stories podcast Don't forget to subscribe to the show and get in touch with us on Facebook Instagram Twitter and LinkedIn at 24 Stories Tribe I'll be back next week with a brand new guest 